The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Wasik. Uh, he is a columnist for Reuters. He's also a prolific author. He's done about 14 books, and he's come out with a new book now about uh, John Maynard Keynes called Keynes's Way to Wealth. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I gave you a little bit of an introduction. Give you a little bit more of an introduction about what kind of books you've written and a little bit of your experience that led you to write this book. Well, uh, I've been writing a, a bunch of different books on investing over the years. Uh, I wrote a book on uh, President Obama's economic plan. That was the last one. Before that, I wrote a book on the housing crisis, what happened with that. I've done uh, business biography. I've done books on ecology. But mostly, uh, well, half of the books I've done uh, have been in, on investing and retirement. So what led you to this particular book? I mean, people know Keynes as an economist, but they don't particularly know about him as an investor. What led you to this particular topic? Well, you know, it's uncharted territory. Not a lot of people knew that Keynes was such an active investor. Uh, in fact, when I did the uh, research on this, and I read every major biography on Keynes, and there's quite a few, uh, almost as many as there are on Elvis, uh, he really doesn't come out as an investor at all. I mean, the, the major uh, three-volume biography by Robert Skidelsky uh, only mentions a couple of stocks, and I'm thinking, well, he just had a handful of stocks. But when I started digging into it, it turns out he was investing um, hundreds of stocks and had thousands of different commodities positions. So uh, what we're going to get into in this uh, interview is kind of what people can learn from what he did. But let's kind of start off with a little bit of his philosophy. As an economist, uh, why don't you just kind of briefly summarize his view here we were in the 1920s with a boom period and then the bust of the 1930s. What did he take uh, from that economic scenario that was different from the, the common economic view of the day before his uh, ideas came across? Well, at the time, there's classical economics, and the law there said that, well, you know, in the free market, uh, things will turn around and the economy will fix itself. Well, Keynes didn't believe that the, the economy was self-righting. He didn't think it was something that was going to heal itself uh, on its own. So he said, you know, what we need is to kind of jumpstart it, and what is needed is stimulus in terms of uh, economic push uh, by the government to create jobs. And, and he traces this all back to uh, what he called the multiplier effect in that if you have a job, you're going to spend money, you're going to create other jobs, you're going to pay taxes, and you're generally going to stimulate the economy. But in a depression, uh, you're not going to do this. You're going to hoard, on, hoard every penny you have and, and not spend money, and, and it's sort of this self-fulfilling prophecy that 
you know, demand will not return unless people are out uh, doing things in, in the broader market. So Keynesian economics in a nutshell says that you really have to give uh, the economy a nudge through government intervention. He didn't say it was a permanent thing, and he didn't say government should take over uh, economies, but he said something needed to happen to, to jolt the economy uh, back into life again. And, and that's, that's it in a nutshell. There's a lot more to his theories, but uh, that was the main piece of it from the 30s. And how would you say that's influencing economic policies today around the world? Well, there's, there's countries that em, have employed Keynesian stimulus. Uh, the biggest Keynesian stimulus right now is in China, uh, where they are trying to manage the largest mar- migration in human history. That is, um, hundreds of millions of people are coming from the country to settle in coastal cities that they're literally creating from scratch. So to keep those people employed, uh, the government has, has spent a tremendous amount of money uh, building subways and high-speed rail and, and entire cities. So that's, that's one way of, of putting people to work, to creating uh, domestic demand uh, for products that are going to be made in China. Uh, of course, another example is the Marshall Plan, which rebuilt uh, all of Europe after World War II. And, of course, uh, we helped out Japan quite a bit in rebuilding that country uh, during the same period. But it's, it's just something that has been profoundly uh, in, influencing economic thinking in the last 60 years or so. Now, you say at the beginning of the book there's kind of the birth of a speculator. Uh, as far back as about 1911, he started buying stocks. What was the uh, kind of way he thought about speculating um, and, and what made him to want to buy one stock over another? He got into some things where he wanted to explore the market, and he loved gambling. He loved getting into card games. So what he would do is that he got into things that um, at first were not stocks. He, he bought a few stocks with what money he had, but after 1919, after World War I, he really got into commodities. Um, and he also got into currencies as well. So he was speculating heavily in, in what he thought were, were going to rebound in a big way uh, after World War I. So he was, he was buying every European currency, um, you know, and he, and he bet wrong in 1920 and lost most of his capital, but he was restaked by some friends and his father, uh, so he got back into it. And in the 20s, he was really heavy in, into any commodity you can name, rubber, tin, uh, steel, oil, um, jute. I mean, he was buying left and right. He had thousands of contracts. So this was the kind of situation where he loved the markets. He loved speculating. Uh, he wasn't always right, uh, but that's how he, he started his career. You said one of the early things he did was a so-called dollar-cost averaging, buying more if something went down. Was he one of the early proponents of that idea? You know, I don't know who originally came up with that idea, but he did it. Um, he, for example, I pulled out a, uh, a bunch of holdings he had in, in U.S. Steel, and uh, he liked U.S. Steel quite a bit, and he, and he kept buying it. Um, I think I only found only two instances when he was actually selling, but, you know, he'd, he'd buy some more when the price dipped, and he kept on buying, and he seemed to do this with all the stocks that he liked. Uh, he called his favorite stocks his pets, um, and he he really became attached to them. 
And if he thought they had potential, he just wouldn't sell them. Now, you talk about <clears throat> four different definitions he had for uh, the way one goes in the market. Speculation, gambling, evils of speculation, and methods of speculation. So why don't you kind of talk about how he saw those? Let's do it each individually. How did he see uh, what's the essence of speculation itself? Well, he saw this as uh, somebody who goes into the market uh, perhaps finds uh, some advantage in being there, what he called superior knowledge. So he would get in there and he'd soak up all of this data. There were some like 400 pages of uh, one volume of collected works that showed that he just absorbed all these uh, commodity price quotes and research and supply and demand uh, sheets and, and things like that. He, he thought that, you know, if there was some sort of disparity between supply and demand, then he could take advantage of it. So he was just saying, look, here's a bet that I can take, and I'm going to take it on this particular commodity based on what I know. I'll get in, I'll get out, I'll do some complex, you know, short or long trades, uh, depending on what I see. And that's what he was doing uh, roughly for most of the 1920s. So he was definitely not a believer in the efficient market theory and random walk and all of that. He thought that uh, he could outsmart the market by knowledge. At that point, yeah, he thought he was the smartest guy in the world, and he was doing pretty well from, from what I could tell, but it would take uh, years to really analyze all those trades to see how he made out on all of them. Uh, but he, he was doing pretty well by 1928. So that was speculation. The next thing he talked about is gambling. So how is gambling different than speculation in his mind? Well, gambling was just kind of throwing the dice and not really um, doing any research. Uh, it would be like saying, well, I got a hunch on uh, General Motors or, uh, you know, Shell Oil or something like that, uh, and not really looking at any of the data or making any analysis. So it's just kind of a, kind of a coin toss there. And then he talks about the evils of speculation. I mean, here he's speculating himself. Why did he think there were evils of speculation? Well, he took a very nuanced view of, of how the market works, and he became a, a lot more sophisticated as time went on. Uh, he didn't use the same uh, investing principles uh, throughout his life. He, he, he evolved. He learned from his mistakes. But really, one of the things that he did see was that speculators could manipulate the market and, and, and really hurt a lot of people. So uh, in, in the end, when, we, when he was actually advocating market reforms uh, toward the middle and end of his career, he, he saw this as not something that, that, that really could uh, stand unchallenged. He wanted to see some regulation of it. So he definitely supported the formation of the SEC and all the rules that came along that in 1933. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I mean, I don't think that he had direct input into it, although he did talk with FDR on a number of issues to stimulate the economy. Um, I don't know how much the New Deal regulation uh, could have been traced back to him, but he certainly had a lot to say about it. Okay, and then um, the last one was methods of speculation. What are some of the methods he was talking about that are okay and, and not okay? Well, uh, he would use uh, commodity contracts to go long or short uh, on a particular commodity. Uh, he used options, uh, things like that, which are on exchanges today. Now, I don't think he, he would have had any idea of what it's kind of morphed into with 
you know, a six hundred trillion dollar derivatives market, but but he was he was on top of it uh, when he was in the market, and, and he and he saw these things as as useful vehicles. Um, he got into trouble once. He he was long on grain, and uh, if you get to the end of the contract, you you either have to take delivery of the actual commodity or or do something with it. And he and he was contemplating uh, what he would do with uh, you know these thousand bushels of grain that he was. The legend goes he was measuring out King's College Chapel to see if it could store in this, <laughs> this ancient t- church. You know, it was kind of funny. But it didn't work out well. But so in seeing the markets today, there's a huge amount of trading and futures and all that. He would think that's a positive thing, right? That it's making markets more efficient. I would think so. I mean, he he was not against trading. Uh, he certainly traded a lot himself. Uh, he just wanted to see. Um, the whole thing shake out as a fair game, uh, and a lot of speculators over the years have have taken a lot of advantages and insider information, and and you know he was even accused of it himself. So I think he wanted to level the playing field. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Wasik, who's come out with a new book called Keynes's Way to Wealth. Uh, John has a website. John Wasik, W-A-S-I-K dot net. We can find out about him and his new book. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have on nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. 
Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Wasik. Uh, he is a financial journalist at uh, Reuters. He's written several books. His latest book is called Keynes's Way to Wealth. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks, Jordan. So you had a whole area here on uh, the kind of keystones of Keynesian economics and, and why commodities are dangerous. <clears throat> why do you think commodities were dangerous? Well, here's the deal. I mean, uh, the conventional wisdom forever... Uh, in investing is that commodities run in cycles that uh, are counter-cyclical to stocks. And, and, and forever, you know, investment managers have said, well, you know, if you invest in commodities, you know, you'll, you'll avoid a stock market downturn because they don't run in the same, um, the same way. But, you know, whenever there's a huge downturn, you know, like 1929 or 2008, uh, they tend to run in lockstep. So previously, they're, they're not linked at all, and they, they kind of run in their own course. But, you know, when something really bad happens, then demand falls off for commodities, and stocks get sold off, and, and you get this, this double hit uh, if you're invested in them. So I don't think they're necessarily dangerous on their own, but you just have to realize that they're extremely volatile. Um, they follow their own sort of demand and supply cycles, uh, it depends what you're looking at. Uh, oil, you know, tends to run with some other uh, commodities like gold. Um, and, and then, you know, you just, you just can't know those markets that well. Um, you can invest in a basket of them, but, again, it's not, it's not like insurance against the stock market route. It's, it's just another way of investing. So uh, what's most dangerous about it is the thinking that somehow you're going to insulate yourself from stock market risk, um, and, and that's not the case. Yes, indeed. Now, one of his big books, uh, Keynes' biggest books, was called A Treatise on Money, and in there he talks about various economic cycles and the key things he's looking for to see where the economic cycle is. The first one is purchasing power. So talk a little bit about how he saw purchasing power as it affects the economic cycles and, and how that would affect uh, investing behavior. Well, keep in mind this, this is written from the perspective of what he was seeing uh, after World War I. There was, there was a severe recession right after the war, uh, 1919, 1920. And then what, would, what happened on the continent is that, uh, and, and elsewhere, uh, it was that inflation ramped up quite a bit. Uh, so if you were in, say, fixed income securities or, or anything with just, you know, paid an interest yield, um, you really got cooked. Um, and, you know, if you, you didn't hedge your currency risk, like, you know, say you were in German marks, uh, you were in even bigger trouble, and you lost purchasing power because the value of, of what you had 
denominated in whatever currency, and the continental currencies got hurt the worst, um, you, you just lost you know, the value of whatever you had uh, by, by no fault of your own. So he really saw inflation as, as a real demon, um, and, he, and he didn't want to see that happen again. So you know, keep in mind, he's watching you know, the, the expansion of, of, of different things happening uh, you know, the economy did kind of rebound, um, but slowly in Europe, not as fast as it did in the 1920s in the United States. Of course, Germany, you know, just went headlong into uh, hyperinflation and, of course, the Weimar Republic and then Hitler. Uh, so he, he saw this happening and said, look, you know, this, this is very important. If we don't pay attention to this and somehow police it, uh, you know, this is trouble for, for most everybody. How would he see today where central banks around the world, the United States, Europe, Japan, China, and so on, have created a huge amount of currency, uh, yet there's not much official loss in purchasing power. There may be some real loss, but not much loss in purchasing power. Would he think this is a normal situation we're in today? Well, it depends how you define normal. I, I mean, I think that you really have to look at what's happening with the economy. Uh, we're still kind of deleveraging after 2008, and there's a huge credit uh, bubble that burst. So, you know, inflation's going to be very low uh, for a long time, I think. And if demand doesn't return uh, for credit, for consumer goods, um, and wages aren't going up, then you're not going to see much inflation. It, it, you know, lately I've, been heard, I've heard them talking about deflation again, uh, which is a distinct possibility if you don't have demand returning to the economy. But this is something that, you know, this time is, is a little bit different because demographically the United States is heading into this zone where, you know, baby boomers are getting older, they're not buying cars, they're not buying houses, you know, so the demand for credit is going to remain, you know, flatter or maybe even slipping a little bit. And until, you know, the economy fully rebounds, and it really hasn't, uh, you're not going to see much inflation. So is it something to worry about, and should the central banks pay attention to it? Well, they have been, um, but right now it's, it doesn't seem to be a problem and hasn't been for the last five years. And that was the other thing that he was looking for. Keynes was looking at commodity inflation as a way to kind of judge economic cycles. So he would say with where commodities are today, that there's not going to be much inflation going forward. Is that right? Pretty much. I mean, uh, he saw a much different picture back in the 20s and 30s. Um, you know, of course, commodity demand fell off dramatically between 29 and, and uh, 39, and then it rebounded at the start of World War II. And then the, there were other factors, too. I mean, there was just there was a tremendous amount of rebuilding that needed to happen after World War One. Um, and in the United States was largely unaffected by that. So, you know, we, we had the Roaring Twenties, and Europe, you know, was limping along and never did quite recover. So you have to kind of put that into historical context. And then the last thing he looked for in cycles was profit. He was a capitalist, uh, ultimately. What, what he was looking for a forecast of where profits were going. Was how, how would he use profit in, uh, as, as looking at where we are in the economic cycle? Well, he was, he was very interested in that because uh, as he was picking stocks, and he, he really shifted into stocks in the 1930s, and most people were saying, are you kidding? 
there's no way I'm getting into stocks. But Keynes was picking him up, and he looked at a thing called enterprise value, uh, which was, you know, what was the company's value uh, in producing profits, in doing it consistently in terms of its business model. Um, you know, we would call this, you know, sort of a Warren Buffett way of investing now. It's like, well, forget about what the market's doing now or the economy's doing now. Where is this company going to be in a couple of years, in 10 years, in 20 years? Are there barriers of entry? That's why we picked up some really solid companies that were like railroads and industrial concerns and, and, and uh, shipping companies, oil companies, you know, companies he knew that would be profitable uh, well into the future and well beyond the, the Great Depression. Yeah. How did the, uh, the crash and the aftermath and the crash affect Keynes' investment behavior? Well, I think it changed it dramatically. For one thing, uh, going into 29, uh, he was long a, a, a lot of, in, into a lot of different commodity positions, uh, and, and he really got scorched. I mean, he lost, I don't know, like 80% of his, his net worth in that, the whole crash, and he didn't see it coming. I mean, here, here's one of the guys who, who thought he was one of the smartest guys uh, in in terms of monetary policy, in terms of economics, in terms of, you know, data coming out of any government. You know, he had his finger on the pulse of everything economic. And, and certainly he was, he was brilliant at, at, at seeing, you know, what needed to be done. But as far as predicting what was going to happen, he wasn't there. So he was quite shocked. And, and then he went into the 30s saying, look, we, we have to ramp up what he called aggregate demand, which is, people spending money to get the economy going. You call it magneto trouble, which is, you know, like the starter on a, on a car. So, you know, mm-hmm. we've got to kind of get this thing rolling again or else we're, we're going to be in even deeper trouble. And it turns out he was right about that. Now, one of the concepts he had is what's called animal spirits and uh, as it affects investors. Describe what you mean by, an- what he meant by animal spirits and how that affects uh, the investment markets. Well, this is a, a really central concept do I think anything that you read about Keynes uh, that, you're, that you really need to digest. Uh, he wrote this classic in economics called The General Theory on Employment, Interest, and Money, uh, which is a, a devilish book to get through. I mean, it took me like three times to really sort of get, you know, the meat out of it. And, and it's just this, this wonderfully prosaic concept that, you know, whatever you say the market is going to do, you know, it's just a herd of emotion. It's, it's a bunch of irrational sort of um, things going on, and you can't predict it, and you can't measure it. You just know it's going to happen. So by that token, he's saying, well, if this is what it is, it's just this miasma of, of people, you know, showing their fear or greed or both or, uh, you know, just pulling back or jumping in. What can you do? Then, and he said, look, there's nothing you can do about that sort of characteristic of the market. You just can't trade on that because you don't know where it's going. So instead, just look at the companies you're investing in and, and say, what? what about these companies here? Are they going to produce earnings, dividends? Are they going to do it over a period of time? That's more important than the animal spirits of the market, which are just going to confuse you and, and delude you into doing something even more irrational. It's interesting that he learned that, having been whipsawed himself, 
And Kamala is another thing. He, he, he really got the backside of animal spirits, I guess you might say. Well, that's the unique thing about Keynes is that uh, this was not theory to him. He was losing real money of his own. His, his Bloomsbury friends like, you know, uh, Virginia Woolf and Lytton Strachey, people like that. I mean, he was losing, you know, money for people that he knew and, and loved and, and also for two insurance companies that he managed and the King's College uh, Fund at Cambridge University. So this was not something abstract to him. <laughs> these, these were real people involved. They were saying, Keynes, what are you thinking? You're, you know, here it is, 1934, you're buying stocks. It's like, who's buying stocks? Yes. So, you know, after a while, he had had not only this concept of animal spirits that said, look, ignore this stuff, look ahead, you know, uh, keep your chin up day of the course, but also the gumption to tell other people that, that this was the strategy he was going to stick to. It wasn't easy, indeed. Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Wasik. Uh, his latest book is called Keynes's Way to Wealth, and we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is John Wasik. He's a columnist at Reuters, and he's written several books on financial topics. His latest book is called Keynes's Way to Wealth. Timeless Investment Lessons from the Great Economist. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks, Jordan. 
So you've got some specific insights for investors uh, that Keynes learned out of his experience, both positive and negative, and let's go through those. The first one is uh, it's not the blind forecast of a company's expectations that matters, but the confidence we place in it. So expand on that a little bit. Well, here's the real key to the stock market that a lot of people don't realize. Uh, A lot of people think that the stock market is the economy or the stock market is this great rational measurement of of what uh, companies are worth or the stock prices, and it it isn't. It's just this sort of gauge of expectations, and a lot of that is built on confidence. Uh, Why is Apple the most popular stock? Well, because people are confident that it will continue to make money, uh, hold on to market share, uh, do any number of things, innovate, create great designs, um, and, and that's what puts them at the top of the heap. Now, if confidence is eroded somehow, they don't make their earnings, they lose market share um, to Samsung or some you know, great bevy of competitors that they face, then you know, the share price will reflect that. Now, one would think that everybody would factor that all in, uh, sort of an efficient market theory sort of way of thinking, uh, but they don't. Uh, people are largely you know, girded by their emotions to buy these stocks and keep them at high values uh, when they're you know, sort of at their height. Now, the next one you have is to look at a company's book value in determining whether to buy it or not. How should people look at book value in today's market based on what Keynes said? Well, this is pretty easy to do. I mean, you can either look at what the, the great value investors are doing, you know, like Warren Buffett. There's any number of mutual funds uh, that feature great uh, value guys uh, who are buying stocks at bargain prices. These are prices based on price-to-book value and some other measures where they think these companies are good franchises, they're going to be solid into the future, um, and they're undervalued relative to what the market is pricing them at. So this is the antithesis of efficient market theory, and it basically says that, you know, you can find bargains out there, and if you do, uh, you know, grab them at these great prices and hold on to them. And then you have them saying the market doesn't know everything. This is the opposite of the efficient market theory, I guess you might say. Well, it it just doesn't. I mean, why is is Twitter... um, doing so well? Why did it go up like 60% past its IPO price? Is it based on earnings? No, it doesn't have any earnings. So, so why is this happening? Does the market really know something uh, about future earnings potential, and how is that possible? So it's based on something else. So we're, we're back to animal spirits again. And it's, and it's not something you can really you know, pin to the wall. So if you were moderating a debate between Keynes and a, a efficient market theorist today who's saying the prices of stocks today reflect all the knowledge in them. Um, how would he respond to that? Well, I think he would say that, you know, how do you measure emotion? I mean, if you could truly quantify, you know, the confidence level in a stock or the amount of fear based in the company maybe losing money or things like that, then it would be fair. And you could say, yeah, the market knows this. But until we get to this point where we have these tools to truly measure that, um, you, you really can't say that the market's efficient. And then you have them saying that the market can be irrational and produce noise. What is rational and what's irrational? How, how should investors look for what's going to help them there? Well, you know, we don't, don't really know what that means over time. 
you know, sometimes the stock is trashed for no good reason, and you can't find any reason for it. Uh, you'll see these commentaries every day on the stock market. It went down because of, you know, so-and-so said, so, said this on CNBC, and that triggered something. It's like, well, how can you find a correlation between these things? It, you know, it doesn't really exist. So you really have to say, look, you know, if you want to be in this stock, if you want to be in this mutual fund, take the long view, you know. Don't, don't watch the day-to-day stuff. Turn off the TV and, and don't pretend that, that any of these little fluctuations is, is meaningful. And then he says that the market can change faster than you can change your mind. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, uh, everything happens very quickly. You know, you have high-speed trading now. You have uh, trading uh, desks that are, are moving things in a millisecond to get some price advantage. You know, you have high-speed fiber optic lines between Chicago and New York. I mean, how can you pretend to outfox that? I mean, really, you know, if everybody's got the same set of tools, yeah, maybe it would be efficient. But, you know, there's constant game of one-upsmanship. You know, one boutique trading house will have, a, a you know, this incredible algorithm that can, you know, spot, you know, price disparities. Well, how are you going to compete against that? Well, you can't. So don't even try. Yeah. And then he said that short-term thinking increases volatility. So is he basically saying to ignore short-term thinking or take advantage of volatility? What is his point here? His, his main message is to, is to ignore it. And, and this, is, again, goes back to the animal spirits argument. There's a lot of things going on there. It may not be significant. Uh, most of the research I have seen says that, you know, short-term fluctuations in prices is just statistical noise. It's not valid. It's not going to give you a trend on the where are stocks going or what's happening with the economy. It's just meaningless. So, so don't look at that. Look at your big picture. You know, can you afford to be in the stock market? Should you be taking that kind of risk? You know, should you have 60% of the stocks, 40%? I mean, what, what makes you comfortable? What makes you able to sleep at night? That's the more important question. Yet most of the uh, the effort that people have today watching TV and newspapers and magazines is about the day-to-day, particularly TV, about the moment-to-moment noise, as you say. So it's kind of hard to ignore all the noise you see. Well, they have to sell advertising, so they have to keep this constant stream of, of, of blabber going on, and it's, it's not helpful to the average investor. I mean, if you're sitting on a trading desk, uh, maybe it's helpful, but not, not to most people. Then you have Kane saying it pays to be contrarian. So, uh, again, that may be easy to say, but it's hard psychologically for people to buy when things are down and depressed and sell when things are high and rising. How does he say people should do that? Well, really, it's a matter of staying the course. If you want to be in stocks, if you want to take advantage of you know, earnings flow, dividends, things that, that really drive a, drive a stock price over time, then, you know, you shouldn't be timing the market. You should be uh, investing more. Here's, here's something that's not very well known. Uh, the Great Depression was actually a series of recessions and rebounds. Uh, one of the biggest rallies in stock market history happened in the early 30s uh, after the crash. And if you had either stayed in the stocks or were buying again, you would have done really well. Um, and in by the same token, if you w- would have bought in 2009, we are currently still in a 
bull market in stocks that started in 2009 after one of the worst years in stock market history. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, gosh, you know, that was a time when nobody wanted to go near stocks, but it's like, well, you look at it, it was a really good time to buy stocks and to hold on to them. So, you know, you wouldn't have taken advantage of that rebound uh, if you hadn't been in the market. So market timers lost out. Then you have Keynes saying there's a difference between speculation and investing. Uh, what is the difference as he sees it, and how can you use that for your advantage as an investor? Well, investors have a plan. They're not just going to take a quick hit. They're not going to do market timing. They're not going to pretend that they can read signals or technical indicators that show them some sort of uh, you know, false direction. They don't, they don't do that. They, they stick to a company. They stick to a strategy and say, look, if this is viable, it will work over time, all things being equal. So by that same thinking, you can say, look, I want to retire in 20 or 30 years. How do I get there? Well, you're going to need a certain percentage growth every year. Compound interest works in your favor, but it, it won't work in your favor if you're in cash or if you're in bonds. You just, you just get creamed, and it, it, you won't have any growth. Yeah. And then you have Keynes saying that fundamental analysis matters, but it's not enough. Uh, what does he mean by that? Well, you know, you can crunch all the numbers you want. You know, you can look at, you know, price-to-earnings ratio. You can look at the dividend yield. You can look, you know, price, you know, cash on hand, sales, top line, bottom line, all these different numbers, and you can analyze the stock to death. But the basic bottom line is, is it going to be making money? Is it going to be producing cash to create earnings to give you a dividend that you can reinvest? That's always what you need to look at. Now, if you kind of ratchet this up a bit and say, look, isn't this what Warren Buffett has been doing forever? And, and the easy answer is yes, but <laughs> he's always buying these stocks to hold them what he calls forever. Uh, he's only made a couple of mistakes, but the stocks that he's had, he's had for a long time, and they keep paying them back. And if they weren't paying them back, they didn't produce cash, he wouldn't hold on to them. Yeah. And then the tenth one is don't cling blindly to conventional wisdom. What does Keynes mean by conventional wisdom, and how should one not cling blindly to it? Well, he also saw the market as a beauty contest, too. That was one of his famous observations, is that, you know, sometimes, you know, the most popular stock isn't the best one. Uh, for example, gold was really hot uh, up until recently, and people thought that the world economy was going to collapse, and Europe was going to you know, get away from the euro and gold was going to be the, the place to be. Well, one thing, gold really only sort of makes sense when there's hyperinflation. That never happened. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen uh, anytime soon unless there's some major calamity. But central banks have, have, you know, done huge stimulus programs to keep inflation down uh, and interest rates low. And, and it's really just kind of an index of fear. So, even though people were saying, oh, gold's going to hit you know, $5,000 an ounce or whatever, it wasn't true. It just, it just didn't square with the facts of what was going on. It was just, just pure fear. So 
popular sentiment can be incorrect. And he's saying, look, you have to be, be very uh, aware of that and, and, and avoid it. Not get caught up in the, the things of the day, yes. Very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is John Wasik, uh, an author of many books. He's also a columnist at Reuters. And his latest book is called Keynes's Way to Wealth, Timeless Investment Lessons from the Great Economists. And his website is johnwasik.net. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Are you looking for innovative ideas on how to achieve your financial dreams? Tune in to Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday afternoon at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Join certified financial planners Ken Smith and Ethan Broga to learn how you can obtain financial success. You'll be entertained while you discover techniques to alleviate your financial concerns. Empirical Investing Radio every Thursday at 2 Pacific, 5 Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Think of the world... 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. My uh, guest this hour is John Wasik. Uh, he is a columnist at Reuters. He's written several books. His latest book is called Keynes's Way to Wealth, Timeless Investment Lessons from the Great Economist. Welcome back to the show, John. Well, thanks for having me, Jordan. You have uh, the different investment policy ideas that Keynes came up with that would apply to people today. So let's go through those one at a time. The first one is to write down a customized investment policy statement. What should people put in that, and and what do you mean by customized? Well, this is essential. I mean, and this gets you away from watching the market day to day. And basically, it's a statement that says, you know, I want to take this amount of risk. And that means... 60% 60% stocks, 40% bonds, whatever you feel comfortable with. So you're making uh, a definitive sort of finger on a piece of paper statement that says, look, this is how much risk I can tolerate. This is where I'm going to you know, stay in terms of the allocation. Uh, you know, do I want foreign investments? Do I want small company stocks? It's, it's all laid out in, in the investment policy statement. Basically, you do it once. Uh, you either review it or update it once a year, uh, and it's it's really 
a blueprint for what you want to do in investing so that you're not saying, well, this month, oh, I should be buying Apple, or next month I'm going to be buying ExxonMobil. It's like, see, you avoid this sort of spurious in and out, you know, trading at the wrong time uh, sort of philosophy that Wall Street wants you to do. And it's, it keeps you out of trouble most, most of the time. Then you say uh, that uh, Keynes said to recognize and, va- and measure value stocks and hold them through thick and thin. Now, some would say today all the uh, momentum is with the growth stocks, the Google and Netflix and Teslas of the world, and so on. You're going to miss out if you're just sticking with old, boring value stocks. How do you think his advice holds up today? Well, you have to keep in mind that growth and value constantly have this seesaw battle going on. You know, sometimes growth is in favor, sometimes value is in favor. You know, you can own both. It's, there's, there's no harm in doing that. And it's really probably uh, more beneficial to do it so you hold the entire market and you're not trying to guess which is going to be, you know, on the up cycle. Uh, then you say that uh, people should not time the market. And we talked about animal spirits and so on. So what are some of the ways that, that Keynes said people should get into the market without trying to react to momentary ups and downs? Well, he said, you know, ignore what's going on at the moment. Um, if you want to be in the market, uh, pick some quality companies, uh, stick with them, make sure they have dividends, they're paying you back, and, and they're fairly consistent in their management. Um, so you're looking in terms of uh, durability for a stock, uh, something that you would want to hold for several years, and, and stop you know, employing short-term thinking. Then he said to balance your portfolio with investments that don't run in the same direction. So this is uh, the idea of balanced portfolio. Well, how would that apply today? Well, that's pretty easy to do because, say, in most 401ks, they'll offer you a wide selection of, of mutual funds. So you'd, you'd balance the risk of the stock market with bonds. Uh, you'd, you'd balance the risk of bonds with treasury inflation securities, uh, which go up in value if inflation soars. Uh, so you won't lose value uh, too much from your bond holdings. Uh, you can also get into real estate investment trusts, uh, commodity funds, uh, things that would track inflation uh, somewhat better than, than stocks would. So, you know, it's still modern portfolio theory kind of thinking where you try to mitigate the risks of being over-concentrated in one kind of uh, security. Yes. And then his final one was to maintain your discipline while others are losing their heads. How does one do that when you have an extreme, either positive, as we are today, or negative, as it would have been, say, in 2008? Well, that's really tough. I mean, (laughs) this is perhaps the toughest part of the whole game, is that, you know, Keynes was in the market in the 30s and buying up stocks, and, you know, who knows if he would have been right, you know, at the time, but he saw this as an opportunity, and if, if you kind of reverse the, the whole psychology and say, look, when stocks take a dip, it's a good time to buy more if you like the company. That's what Warren Buffett's been doing uh, for several decades, and it, it seems to have worked for him, so you have to think counterintuitive. Indeed. Before we get to the end, I just want to have, have, give you a chance to talk about what is at your website. Uh, johnwasick.net. In addition to finding out about the book, what are some of the other things that you offer on your website? Well, it, it has a selection of some articles that I've done, um, also information on what I do and how I do it, um, 
how to connect with me in terms of, uh, you know, if you have a question about my books or speaking engagements, things like that. It's just sort of an omnibus site that has a lot of my material on it. Okay, and then uh, you talk at the end of your book about Keynes' heirs, uh, the various uh, big value investors like uh, Benjamin Graham and Warren Buffett and uh, David Swenson, the guy who runs the Yale Endowment Fund, and Jeremy Grantham. What, what did some of those people take from Keynes that helped them become successful investors? I think the biggest piece is that they really learned that you could make money in an, an adverse environment that if you had a, a really definitive plan that focused on, on quality investments and kind of stayed your course, uh, you, could, you could do very well over time. My, my favorite story is, is about Jack Bogle. Who I, I wanted to read the book just to review the section on him and, and really exceeded my expectations because when I showed it to him, he said, look, I, I'd like to write a forward for this. And it just kind of floored me because he's, He's the father of the index fund, and when he started out uh, in the 70s with his index fund idea, um, you know, they called it Bogle's Folly. You know, like, you know, you're going to fall flat on your face because everybody knows this isn't going to work. But lo and behold, Vanguard is the largest mutual fund company by assets in the world now. Uh, Everybody sort of figured out that they could, you know, beat the, you know, active management over time with just simple indexing. Um, and, and really not, <laughs> not stress themselves out in, in doing it. But, you know, Bogle saw the book and he said, oh, my God, Keynes influenced my entire career. And he, he told me about this over lunch, and it was really remarkable. I had no idea that somebody like Keynes influenced him to that extent. And here's a guy who really does deserve a Nobel Prize for what he's done for investors. And, would uh, Keynes have liked Bogle, and would, would Keynes have liked the kind of investing that's going on, uh, index investing that goes on today? I think so, because there's an intellectual link between saying that the animal spirits are going to mess you up and being in an index fund, because index fund investors really don't care about day-to-day stuff. They're not going to try to time the market by and large. They put their portfolios together at the lowest cost, covering the, the greatest number of assets, and, and try to leave it alone. So I, I think there is, is definitely a, a solid sort of intellectual legacy there that, that uh, both men share. So in summing up, in about a minute or so we have left, what can people learn? We've talked about a lot of different things, but what is the kind of central premise that people can learn studying how Keynes was an investor to be a good investor themselves today? Well, just don't think you're going to outsmart the market. I mean... Maybe, you know, buy a stock here or there, you know, for fun. There's no, no harm in gambling a little bit, but don't stake your entire nest egg on, on going in and out. You'll just, after cost and after timing errors, you're going to lose a lot of money, and it won't be worth it, and you won't have a dignified retirement. So really, just pick a plan, get yourself an investment policy statement, decide what you want to do, you know, go for growth, go for dividends, uh, keep reinvesting if you can. Uh, keep saving as much as you can. And forget about it. Simplify your plan. Customize it to the way you feel. And then leave it alone. Go out and enjoy your life. <laughs> that would be very, very different than the way most people do it today, indeed. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been John Wasik. He's a columnist at Reuters. Uh, he's written many books. His latest book is called Keynes' Way to Wealth. 
Timeless Investment Lessons from the Great Economist. Again, his website is johnwasick.net. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, John. My pleasure, Jordan. Thank you. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 